this evening, I've been asked to speak about how to avoid mixing ego with Dharma practice. All of us are involved with Dharma practice, and we obviously would like to make that practice as pure as possible. But inevitably, ego problems come in and cause some obstacles and blocks. And often we don't even recognize these ego games that come in. They can be very, very subtle and very clever. Ego is very clever at producing blockages. Now, first of all, when we speak about ego, we're speaking in some Western concept. And there's not exactly the same concept in the Buddhist framework. So first we have to see how it actually fits in this discussion of ego into the Buddhist framework in order to be able to find Buddhist methods for overcoming troubles that it causes. In Buddhism, we speak about a difference between the conventional me, which does exist, and the false me, which does not exist, and which is to be refuted, whereas the West speaks of a healthy ego and an unhealthy ego. So when we ask what is a, a healthy ego, a healthy ego would be a sense of me on the basis of the conventional me, which does exist. And an unhealthy ego would be a sense of a me that's based on the false me, the one that doesn't exist. So either we think in terms of a truly existent, static, solid me, and on the basis of that, identifying with that, we would have what we call in the West an inflated ego, or we could completely deny even the conventional ego, the conventional self, the conventional me, and then we would have what might be called a deflated ego, no real sense of a me. So for healthy Dharma practice, we need, obviously, a healthy ego. That is actually something quite important to realize because a lot of people think that they have to get rid of ego completely, which can go to quite this extreme of the deflated ego. But you need a healthy ego. We need, all of us need a healthy ego so that we take responsibility for what we experience in life. And so we put a safe direction, refuge in it. We aim for liberation. We aim for enlightenment. We follow a course of practice that's based on karmic cause and effect. All of that's on the basis of a healthy ego. Just like in the West, we would say, if you have a healthy ego, you get up in the morning and you get dressed and you... You know, do something with your life. If you don't have that type of healthy ego, you just lie in bed all day and never get up. A healthy ego is taking responsibility for our lives. And that type of ego is very important for Dharma practice. Otherwise, we don't strive for anything. So what can help us to recognize this type of uh, healthy ego, this type of uh, conventional me? To think about our Buddha nature, the various factors which will allow us to become a Buddha. These are the basic nature of the mind, which is always the case. But on the basis of that, we have various factors which can be developed, like a basic concern for concern, either for others or for ourselves, or a basic ability to understand. We realize that these are things which can be developed further and further in terms of following practice by building up more and more positive force, eliminating negativities and uh, obstructions and so on, then that helps us to take responsibility because we see that it's possible. We see that there's an actual course of practice that can develop our qualities. So I think it's on this basis that we can start to work with a healthy ego in our Buddhist practice. And the problem comes when either we inflate this into, I'm so wonderful, and so on. Or think that we don't have to follow cause and effect. Or we deny, on the other hand, that we have any of these qualities. Although we might be able to recognize that we can build a healthy ego on the basis of our Buddha nature factors, nevertheless, we have grasping for a false me. And it feels as though we're a solid, findable me, and we believe it, and we act on that basis. And I think it's very important to recognize 
that until we become a liberated arhat, which is quite a high achievement, we're still going to have this grasping for uh, a solid, findable me. And so I don't think that it really is realistic to get discouraged when we find that various ego trips and so on come into our Dharma practice, because after all, what do we expect? We're still in samsara. And samsara, the nature of samsara is that it goes up and down. And so sometimes things go better, sometimes they go worse. Sometimes our practice is relatively pure, and other times ego trips come in. So this is to be expected. But, of course, there are different levels of grossness of these ego trips based on an unhealthy ego that we can have. And so it's important to try to recognize some of these different levels. And for the grosser ones, we can apply provisional methods that can help us temporarily. But for the more subtle ones, obviously, we need the final remedy, which is the understanding of the voidness of the self. So let's look at some of these grosser problems. Often we can recognize these grosser problems from the reasons why we might have become involved with Dharma in the first place. Some of us become involved with Dharma because of some karmic reasons that causes us to be curious and interested. Dharma, of course, would explain that in terms of previous life connections. And so we hear of a teacher, or we could even see something on the television, of some report of His Holiness the Dalai Lama visiting our country or something like that or see some advertisement in the newspaper and sort of triggers something off and we become interested in dharma and we go and pursue that. Such type of entering into the dharma have far less problems. That's a more natural way of entering into it. One reason could be because it's trendy. It's cool to be involved with the dharma or we want to be accepted by a certain group of friends. And so in this case, our ego would be inflated that now we're really cool in the in crowd. We wear our Kala Chakra (laughs) (laughs) t-shirt. And a mala around the the hand. That's right. And the red string. We become a red string around the neck person. Another reason which uh, is there (laughs) could be to find a miracle cure for some deep emotional or physical problem that no solution has helped. And some people come to Dharma, particularly to a teacher, particularly to Asian teachers, hoping that they can find some sort of miracle to help them. And so they have very, very exaggerated expectations. Then a third reason in terms of an inflated ego would be to satisfy interest in exotica, exotic things, these lamas and Tibetan and all of that. And so it's for some type of stimulation, entertainment in a sense. And looking for the third eye and flying in the air, all sorts of extraordinary things like that. Powers, they want powers, magic powers. And so they're not really interested in essential type of practices, but more in the exotic type of things like mask dances and all sorts of stuff like that. That's what they're after. In order to, in general, to avoid these types of ways of entering into the Dharma, we need to examine and correct our motivation. So, for example, if we feel arrogance and conceit that we're part of the in-crowd, the Dharma in-crowd, then to overcome this, we can rejoice that we found the Dharma rather than feel arrogant about it. And then meditate on compassion for others who are still lost, who haven't really found some sort of safe direction in their lives. But compared with others who are far more advanced on the path, we're just infants in the practice, so there's real basis for feeling arrogant. 
Sometimes we think we are so advanced and so great in our practice, and we tend to sometimes look down on, oh, you're still involved in business or stuff like that. But if we compare ourselves with the really great lamas, and so the Dalai Lama, for instance, we're really nowhere in terms of our practice, and so really there's no reason ever to feel arrogance in terms of leading into the Dharma and better than others. Then in terms of if we're getting into the Dharma in order to find a miracle cure, what sometimes happens, the ego trip, is that we're so desperate to find the cure for our suffering that we become really completely preoccupied with ourselves, and so we try to dominate the time of the teacher. We try to dominate the class time with constant questions, and we want constant attention. So to overcome this, we need to think of the equality of self and others. Everybody wants not to suffer. Everybody has problems. Everybody wants to be happy. There's nothing so special about me that I require all the attention of center stage. Connected like that, often some people think that they're milarepas, and so they demand special attention. I've come across people who come to a teacher and immediately they want to be taught the six yogas of Naropa or something like that. Like they're these great advanced meditators when they have no background whatsoever. And for this, what can be helpful is to read the biographies of these great masters like Milarepa to have a realistic idea of what actual real meditators are. Once with my own teacher, Sirkin Rinpoche, I was translating and one very spaced out hippie came in obviously stoned, and he wanted to be taught the six yogas of Naropa. That's why I cited that example. And one of Sirkin Rinpoche's great qualities was that he took everybody totally seriously. And so he took him seriously. He said, that's wonderful that you have this aspiration to study the six yogas of Naropa. And so if you want to do that, here's the first step. The first step was, of course, to study Lam Rim, the greatest stages of the path. And so he led him in this way, to say, yes, your wish is okay. It's not that this is some stupid stone hippie, you get out of here. But taking him seriously, that you want this goal, well, follow cause and effect. And that's something that we can also learn from the biographies of the great masters, that they also went through intensive training. The same is true, whether we want, as a beginner, to immediately get the most advanced meditations or whether, as a beginner, we want to get the most advanced metaphysics and logic without having any foundation for that. Very important to work on overcoming that arrogance, which is basically an inflated ego. So, provisional remedy is thinking caused in terms of cause and effect. If you want to reach a goal, you need to build up all the causes that will bring us there. Can't just skip the causes and immediately have the goal. And if we remember, that was one of the basic characteristics of a healthy ego, was taking responsibility for your life and following a course of cause and effect to bring about goals. Another manifestation of an ego trip that comes from wanting a miracle cure is that we might be so desperate for a cure, for a miracle, that we are willing to do anything that the teacher says without any discrimination, without examining or anything. Just tell me the magic words to say, the magic mantra, and I'll say it a hundred thousand, I'll say it a million times, or a hundred thousand prostrations, or whatever. And so mindlessly they go into these type of practices with incredible expectations that at the end a miracle is going to happen, and then when nothing happens, they fall into a deep depression. They can get so discouraged that they give up the Dharma. I've even heard of an example of someone that committed suicide. So to overcome this, we have to think about, again, how infinite causes, not infinite, but you know, an enormous amount of causes go into bringing about a result. As Buddha said, a bucket isn't filled by the first drop or by the last drop. It's filled by 
the collection of all the drops. Even doing a hundred thousand prostrations, especially if we do it with our mind completely scattered and not a proper motivation, is certainly not going to be a sufficient cause to bring about the effect that we want. And so many, many causes need to go in. We can contribute some causes, but we shouldn't expect one cause is going to produce the effect that we want. And then, on the other hand, not deny cause and effect just because the effect didn't come out because of that one cause that was useless and stupid to do. Thinking that all this positive practice that we did was stupid and a waste of time destroys all the positive force of it. I don't know about all, but it destroys a lot. <laughs> it certainly weakens it. doesn't destroy it all. weakens it. Wishing for a miracle cure based on, as I said, an inflated ego that I'm so important and I therefore have to have a center stage. But it can also be connected with a deflated ego as well. And so what can happen is that it opens us up to abuse. In other words, you know, just tell me the thing to do, omniscient teacher, and I'll do it. If we don't have any discrimination there and don't take any responsibility ourselves for what we're doing, then there is the danger that we could be misguided by an abusive teacher. One has to be careful. Give me all your money and then you will be cured. Your problems will go away because you will build up so much merit. Also, if we're really desperate and we want a miracle, then often what happens is that we run to every initiation that's given. That could be based on many things. A lot of people do that. You don't want to miss anything good, in a sense, but also it can be because of wanting to be accepted by the group or because of the wish for exotica. Initiations attract the largest number of people for some strange reason. So why is that? To help us with this, we need to remember that initiations are only if we actually wish to practice the deity and we have time to do it. So why would you want an initiation for a particular deity? I mean, it could be to renew your vows. That also is quite possible. But the main purpose is that this particular practice is one that I want to do seriously. And therefore, having examined it, having examined the availability of my time and my preparation and so on. Now I really want to get involved with it. So we need to really be realistic about the time we have for daily practice. And also not get into this whole mentality of let's make a deal with the teacher in terms of the commitments. Sergeant Rinpoche really got, was very furious at the Westerners who had that attitude in Dharamsala. They wanted all these initiations, and then they wanted them cheap without having to have any commitment or like that. And I remember once a close Western disciple of Sergeant Rinpoche who wanted a particular initiation and asked him what the commitments would be in terms of practice or the initiation. And Sergeant Rinpoche said, I'm not going to tell you what the commitments were. You should be willing to take any commitment whatsoever because you want so desperately to practice this particular deity. And then he accepted, and he took the initiation. It was a private initiation. It's not a mass type of thing. But even mass type of initiations, I think one should be willing to do whatever practice. If the commitment is to do the long sadhana every day of your life, or the commitment is to do a long retreat or something like that. One should be willing. Otherwise, why are you there? Well, one again needs to examine, well, I don't want to miss something special, or I don't want to be left out, or it's so exotic, or whatever. I was at the Kalachakra initiation that His Holiness the Dalai Lama gave in April this year in Toronto, in Canada. And the preliminary teachings were teachings of Nagarjuna on voidness. And about 2,000 people came to that, and His Holiness asked the audience you know, to raise hands. How many people were there just for 
the voidness teachings, and weren't going to stay for the initiation. And a number of people raised their hands, and His Holiness said, I really appreciate and admire that you've come with that motivation. And then, when it came time for the initiation, 7,000 people showed up. His Holiness was really not terribly pleased and just rushed through the initiation. Also, with the same mentality, we run to every teacher who comes to our city, regardless of who they are or what they're teaching, and often that leads to a great deal of confusion. Or we run and take any vows that are being given if we consider whether or not we can keep them. My other main teacher in India, Geshe Nalantarge, said it's very good that there are only three sets of vows, the Pradimoksha, Bodhisattva, and Tantra vows. If there were more, you would take even more vows and not keep them. (laughs) (laughs) The ego trips that can come in when we are entering the Dharma with the wish for exotica and exotic experiences are quite common. We accumulate all the Dharma instruments, and the tankas, we have to have our vajra and bell and all sorts of different assorted sizes of drums and cymbals, like a Hollywood or a Disneyland setting. And we put on a big show of doing these pujas with all these instruments and the incense and so on, not having the slightest idea of what we're doing. So that becomes really quite an ego trip. And to overcome this, it's important to remember the essence of the Dharma is transforming the mind, not putting on a show. It's very important not to put on a show with our Dharma practice. For instance, when we say dedication prayers before we eat, if the people that we're with aren't into it, to start with Om Aum and make a whole big show, while everybody around you is just looking at you really strangely, is not advisable. That's an ego trip. (laughs) One can do all these things silently. Same thing with walking around with a whole bunch of red strings or a mala around your wrist. There are certain, what should we say, groups of people in which that would be acceptable, but there are others who would find it very, very strange and uncomfortable. You can keep your protection cords in your pocketbook or your wallet or your purse doesn't have to be actually on you physically. And also, as His Holiness the Dalai Lama always jokes about that, I mean, His Holiness thinks that they're a little bit overdone. But he says, you know, you put a red string around the neck of a pig, it's still going to be slaughtered. (laughs) 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 Also, Sirkin was very wonderful in terms of not being attached to all these implements and ritual things. There are some lamas who travel around in the West, and it's like traveling circus or something. They have to carry so much equipment and things with them. But Sirkin Rinpoche, when he would give an initiation, for instance, in the West, very often, I mean, he was at a Dharma center, he used whatever implements they had. But if it was just in someone's house or something like that, He didn't bring with him all these ritual vases and stuff. He asked them, do you have a milk bottle? And he would use a milk bottle. And the same thing in terms of if you have the Vajrayogini empowerment, then there's the commitment to do a tzok offering twice a month on the 10th and 25th of the Tibetan month. And so people sometimes would ask him in the West, what happens if we aren't able to get a Tibetan calendar? And so he said, don't Western months have a 10th and a 25th? So it doesn't really matter. And if you don't have meat and alcohol and these sort of things, he said, well, just offer the meal in front of you. Transform that into the tzok and the meat and the alcohol. Very, very practical. No need to go on big trips with all of this. Main thing is transformation of the mind. Although we can enter Dharma on the basis of an inflated ego, we can also enter on the basis of a deflated ego. So let's look a little bit at that variant. Some people are drawn to Buddhist cults or sects, very strange groups, by a charismatic leader who 
promises them that the lineage they teach and its founder is the best and everything else is no good, that they as the teacher is the best and all others are no good, and all they have to do is give up their own weak, wrong thinking and totally obey the teacher and the teacher's interpretation of the Dharma, which is infallible, because they're Buddhas, and then follow a very strong protector who's going to smash all the enemies of the teacher and that sect, since the others are the enemy. And these teachers use the element of fear of hell if the student disobeys. A lot of people get caught up into that. And that's from a very weak, deflated ego. So what happens is, as I said, these teachers use this element of fear of hells. And they demand absolute obedience and loyalty. And if they disobey or are disloyal, they're going to burn in a hell, a vajra hell especially. And so students who are drawn to this usually have a very weak egos, no self-confidence. And they're attracted by the promise of gaining strength in numbers, and strength from the teacher, the, the teachings, the lineage, the lineage founder, the protector, and so on. And then the students take on the inflated ego of the whole group. Some people call this phenomenon spiritual fascism. Often what this leads to is religious fanaticism. Buddhist fanaticism, based on fear. The wish to be good and not to be bad. The wish to please and to be accepted and loved by the teacher and the group. And a feeling of guilt if we don't practice perfectly. So all of this is based on a strong clinging to a me. And it can occur whether or not we're involved in a Dharma cult. Religious fanaticism is very, very common. Often, what is underlying this fanaticism, as I said, is very common, even if we're not into a cult, is insecurity in the Dharma. We're unsure of ourselves in what we're doing, unsure of the teachings. We don't really have terribly much understanding in it. And so, in a sense, to justify ourselves, we become very stiff in the practice. We're not relaxed into the practice yet. So that's a very common stage that most people go through in the beginning of Dharma practice, even if they're not involved in some sort of cult. And again, insecurity is basically an ego problem. We want to do it right. And we get very defensive in terms of other people challenging what we're doing, as in parents, for example. Often what accompanies this is idealizing the Tibetans, having an over-romantic uh, notion of them, that they're all enlightened beings, but not really having had uh, personal close contact with a lot of them. And also not really having a clear idea of how do we integrate and apply Dharma to our lives, particularly as Westerners. And so that makes us very stiff with the practice, and we compensate for that often with fanaticism, being inflexible. So what can happen frequently is that we make our daily practice too long, so it becomes a burden. There's no joy in it. And what we need to remember is that one of the supports for joyful perseverance is knowing when to take a break and to relax and not to feel guilty about doing so. We have a daily commitment of the practice that we're doing, which of course is very important in terms of sustaining our uh, Dharma practice without a daily practice that we're committed to doing, then Dharma sort of starts to become a bit of a hobby. We do it when we feel like it, and we skip it when we don't feel like it. Having a daily practice gives us great stability. You know, no matter what is going on in our lives, we always have this stable time during the day. When we're practicing, best is early in the morning before we get involved in our day, or late at night uh, before we go to sleep. Different people have different energies, so one is better than the other. But again, with a daily practice, it's important to be 
flexible. Not so flexible that you don't do it. Always do it, no matter what. But to be able to, when there is time, you can do it in a more relaxed and lengthy manner. Um, When there isn't time, you can do it in a shorter manner, more quickly. It doesn't have to be absolutely perfect. It's not going to be perfect anyway, because our concentration is always different on different days. And we're in samsara, so it goes up and down. So in that way, not to feel guilty when we have to catch a train or whatever. And we don't have time to do our practice in a relaxed manner. But still, do it. It's important to remember that we're not doing Dharma practice in order to be a good boy or a good girl. Doing it to overcome our shortcomings and realize and develop potentials so that we can not only get out of our own problems, but help everybody else. And so when we're doing practice or when we're helping a teacher or something like that, as my teachers said, well, what do you expect? That, you know, you're doing it and at the end, the teacher's going to pat you on your head and you wag your tail. It's not the reason for doing it. I was very close and served my own teacher, Sirkin Rinpoche, for nine years as his interpreter and secretary and arranged and managed his uh, trips in the West and so on. And in nine years, he only said thank you to me twice. And only once did he say, you did a good job. (laughs) And it helped me very much not to sit around (laughs) and wait for a pat on the head to wag my tail. So, another danger if we push uh, ourselves too much, and wanting approval or whatever, is that we get what the Tibetans call lung. It's counterproductive. Lung is a frustrated energy in the body, pushing too hard. So relaxation is very important. My favorite Zen koan, which is, I tell people very often, is death can come at any time. Relax. If we can overcome this feeling, that I have to be a good practitioner and not a bad practitioner, then we get rid of this whole issue of guilt. Guilt is based on I have to be good and not bad, and I wasn't perfect, and so on. If we cling to that, identify with it, and don't let go, and then we feel guilty. There's no reason to feel guilty about our practice. We try our best. We regret when it isn't going well. And that's that, because samsara naturally is going to go up and down. Also, when we tend toward religious fanaticism, we're intolerant of different ways or styles of practice. And to overcome that, we need to recognize that the Buddha taught many different styles to suit different people. With skillful means, if we reject and put any of these down, that's what's called abandoning the Dharma. Denying one of uh, Buddha's teachings. His Holiness the Dalai Lama always says the best weapon against sectarianism is education. If you know something about the other traditions, then you're not afraid of them. It's when you're afraid of them, which is based on not knowing anything about them, that then you hold very tightly to my tradition. That's got to be correct, and everyone else is wrong. So it's very helpful to have general idea of what the other traditions are all about. That way we can have a little bit of respect. It might not suit us to actually go deeply into any of the other traditions. But if we have any hope to become a Buddha, we eventually will need to know how to teach everything. We may not be as severely disturbed as this, but many of us still have milder forms of mixing ego with the Dharma practice, a little bit on the fanatic side. I think the biggest manifestation of that is this whole trip of collecting merit. I think often we look at it, especially because of this word merit, like trying to win a contest. They collect points, and at the end, whoever has the most points wins. And there's danger of competition. 
with other practitioners. Oh, I've done 100,000 prostrations. How many have you done? (laughs) This type of thing. Or it can also lead to a mentality of buying our way to liberation and enlightenment. You enough good deeds, then you can buy enlightenment. You've earned it. You've earned the right for having it. Or it can also be with a bit of fear that I want to save up for the winter, for the difficult times, like a squirrel collecting nuts to protect ourselves, which again becomes an ego type of uh, trip. So I think one of the big problems here is the translation in terms of the word merit, because then that gets into the whole idea, and I think you get this in the German translation as well, in terms of earning something, you have to work for it and then earn it, and then this whole concept of you deserve it. You do not deserve it. Do the refugees from Bosnia deserve to have all the welfare benefits of the German state if they don't build merit and do something positive? Do they deserve it or not? So these issues start to come in when you start to think more deeply about our attitude toward merit. That's why I don't like to use this term. I prefer much more positive force, building up positive force. And on the basis of that positive force, the whole energy system of our body can then make a phase transition to another level if of operation, let's say, as an RAR, an ARHAT, or whatever, if we put enough positive force into the system. Now, there's a whole another area as well that I wanted to discuss that also has to do with mixing ego with dharma. And this is very, very common. This is not the drastic form. And that's that we might avoid getting too involved with the dharma. This happens at the beginning to most of us because we're afraid of having to give up some of our usual things, whether they're healthy ego things or unhealthy ego things. We're afraid to take vows. We're afraid to take initiations and so on. I remember in Italy once someone came to see Serkan Rinpoche and was very upset and asked if I really turned fully to uh, Buddhism. Does that mean that I can't go to church anymore? And Serkan Rinpoche replied, didn't Jesus teach love? What's wrong with that? There are certain things, yes, we may need to give up, like hunting and fishing and these type of things for sure. But that doesn't mean that we have to be afraid, that we have to give up absolutely everything. We need to differentiate which of our activities and interests are healthy and helpful, and which are unhealthy and damaging. Sometimes people, you know, the expression to go native, they give up everything of their tradition and walk around in Tibetan clothes and deny everything that is Western. I remember it was really funny when I was first living in India many, many years ago. And this was during the height of the hippie era, 1969. And I looked down very much. I was quite arrogant in those days and looked down very much on these Westerners who came and were just like monkeys, my mind, uh, mimicking Tibetans, wearing Tibetan clothes and going around with their prayer wheels and things like this. And so I was living with a, a Tibetan monk at the time. And I asked him, what do Tibetans think of these Western people that go around wearing Tibetan clothes? And his reply was, we think they like Tibetan clothes. (laughs) (laughs) If we look at the history of Buddhism in Asia, when it has gone from one culture to another, many of the cultural elements and the beliefs of that culture were incorporated into Buddhism. And it flavored very much the way that Buddhism was adopted and understood and practiced. And so I think that uh, undoubtedly a similar process will happen in the West. And so there's no need to feel that you know we have to give up absolutely everything and then be afraid of that and hold back from getting involved in the Dharma because of that fear. 
But again, it will take quite a lot of time and experience to see what really is helpful, what fits, what doesn't fit. Also, there are three aspects of Dharma practice that I often like to differentiate, three sides. There's the intellectual side, there's the emotional side, and there's the devotional side. And often we have blocks regarding the one or the other. These can be various ego-type of blocks. We're afraid, well, Dharma practice is too intellectual. You know, it should only be experiential, emotional, devotional side. Or we make it too intellectual and we're afraid to really give our hearts. Or we're afraid of being devotional because we see that in other traditions this gets completely out of hand and is mindless. And so there's no balance here. Also, there are some people who become over-devotional as an excuse. You know, these people that become overly bliss. The Dharma is so wonderful and Buddha is so wonderful. And they go around with this enormous smile on their face all the time, basically as a cover-up of some very deep hurt that they're not really facing. And so they go into this rose-colored glasses of Buddhism. So there are many, many variations here that can occur. We're afraid to give our heart fully because then we're losing something. Or it might become dangerous that we're going to be sucked up and lose ourself completely. So these issues really need to be examined very carefully to try to find some balance in the intellectual, devotional, and emotional approach to Dharma. Very helpful to examine ourselves to see how balanced are we in these areas. Where do we have blocks? Or where are we going overboard? And why? Usually there's fear underneath it. And that's usually based on some sort of insecure ego. Last point that I wanted to mention is often we don't give Dharma high enough priority. Again, there can be some ego problems behind this. So we don't do a daily practice, or we don't take our daily practices and commitments seriously. We skip practicing when we don't feel like doing it. And we skip class when we don't feel like coming. Or there's a birthday, or there's a concert, or a good movie, or something like that. And this could be because we feel that to practice or to go to class is giving up some essential part of ourselves. The Tibetans don't take Westerners very seriously in terms of our Dharma practice. Most of the Tibetans don't. And one of the main reasons for that is that we don't come regularly to class. We don't take the class seriously. Tibetan, when they go to a teaching, particularly if it's a text, what's really important is to get the oral transmission. And if you miss one day, of the teaching of the text, you've missed the oral transmission. You have to do the whole thing all over again. And so unless you can't possibly get out of bed, you're so sick, they will never miss a session or a class. And Western people don't come for the most trivial of reasons. And so they don't take us seriously. It's not important enough to us. And so why is it not important enough? Well, I don't want to give up this birthday party, or I don't want to come late to the birthday party. This sort of thing. For many of us, that's a very serious issue, a very real issue. So one has to examine the priorities in our life, differentiate between what's important, what's not so important, between when we really can't go to class or meditate, and when we're just making excuses because of laziness or attachment. And we need to reaffirm precious human life, the precious opportunities that we have, and the rarity of that, and think about death and impermanence. When there are regular teachings in a city, a teacher that teaches all the time, often we tend to take that very much for granted, and that's a big danger. It's not always going to be available. And so we don't value it as much as it would be helpful, it would be appropriate. So 
these are some of the points that came to mind in preparing this topic and discussing it. I'm sure there are many more points that one could find in terms of how ego problems come in and jeopardize and damage our Dharma practice. I think the main point is to try to become aware, to try to notice where these various problems lie, to apply these provisional methods, which are very helpful, and strive to understand more and more deeply the teachings on voidness, because that's really the deepest method for overcoming these. That and bodhicitta. Our hearts are totally set on becoming enlightenment, and we have no problem with not coming to class, with not practicing, and so on. If we're so concerned in helping everybody else that we have to reach enlightenment, then of course we can't let the ego problems come in the way. Remember, there's two levels of bodhicitta. There's conventional and deepest bodhicitta. Conventional is that you know, aiming at enlightenment with the intention to achieve it and to help everybody by means of that, motivated by love and compassion. And deepest bodhicitta is the understanding of voidness. And so when Shantideva, the first chapter of Bodhicaryavatara, engaging in bodhisattva behavior, praises bodhicitta so much, he's praising the two levels of it. So that combination is what we need. So we have some time for questions, if you have some questions or comments. Um, you have spoken about the uh uncertainty concerning dharma uh, can you elaborate insecurity a insecurity yes insecurity uh, because of uh, insecurity because of not knowing dharma or insecurity because of not uh, being in that culture or uh, can you elaborate a bit on this no i think the insecurity comes from not enough knowledge of the dharma and not enough experience with it so that we are afraid that if we're a little bit flexible, we're going to lose it. We're going to lose the Dharma. And so we keep a very strict interpretation of it. With any of the vows, there's always in the Vinaya, lists various exceptions. You know, there's a certain thing that you vows are in terms of what you want to avoid. So there's certain things that you're going to avoid, but... There are certain situations when it's okay to avoid it. Like, for instance, let me give an example of there's the thing to avoid not answering questions. This is in the Bodhisattva vows. So sincere questions asked about the Dharma. And you're going to stop saying, no, I'm not going to answer. You're going to answer them. So, but there are exceptions to this if you're too sick then there's no need to answer. Or you're too busy. There's no need to answer. You say, come back later. I don't have time right now. The point is that you don't say, well, I, want to, I don't want to answer your question because it's a stupid question or because I don't like you. Or my favorite television program is on. So if we're not aware of these exceptions, that in fact that's the way that all the vows are stated and explained, then we become very insecure. And so we stick to a very, very strict interpretation of things. We're unsure of ourselves. It's like when you buy a new pair of shoes. In the beginning it's very stiff and uncomfortable. You have to wear it in in order for it to be comfortable and you can deal with any situation in life with it. And also, as I said, we want to be perfect. So I'm afraid that if I don't do it exactly right, then I'm bad. Um, that sounds a bit as if uh, it would be good to have a uh, psychotherapy or psychoanalysis as a preliminary practice before entering into the Dharma in a uh, modern, uh, adapted way. Uh, what do you think about uh, therapies as a preliminary uh, practice? If somebody has a, a 
deficient sense of self-worth or an exaggerated one? Oh, I'm all for it. I think that therapy can be extremely helpful if it's done properly by a qualified therapist. And if the person is really, the patient is taking it very seriously. I think that there are many issues, emotional problems, that if we don't take care of it, we're going to jeopardize our Dharma practice before we reach the stage where we know Dharma well enough to be able to apply Dharma methods for overcoming these problems. That's the thing. Dharma has, of course, the strongest methods for dealing with these things. But you have to be able to get to the point that you know it well enough and have enough discipline and concentration to apply it. And so for most people who have serious emotional problems, that's not possible. And they don't have the discipline to meditate and so on and to examine themselves. And so if you have a therapeutic context in which provides the discipline and the protected space, as it were, to look at yourself beforehand, then you can avoid a lot of troubles in Dharma practice. I think that Dharma practice is basically intended for people who are fairly emotionally stable, not super neurotic people. And so I think that therapy can be very helpful beforehand. What I find sad sometimes is people who have been practicing 10, 20, 25 years And at that point, go into uh, therapy and don't have enough confidence in the Dharma methods to be able to deal with these problems. That I find quite sad. But as I said, before we have the ability to use the Dharma methods, therapy is very useful. And there are many insights from therapy that can help us in our Dharma practice in any case. So it's getting a bit late, so maybe we can end here. I think whatever understanding, whatever insight uh, we might have gained, whatever positive force has come from this, may it act as a cause for reaching enlightenment for the benefit of all. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you.